All right, so here's where we've been. David's king down in Hebron, seven and a half years. That's the red dot. Ishbosheth, the remaining surviving son of Saul, is reigning in Manaheim. Mahanaim, excuse me. That green dot. So David's over Judah, one tribe. Ishbosheth kind of has the rest, but he's a he's a figurehead. The north is really run by Abner, who is his general, and that's the state for the back two years of David, seven and a half years in Hebron. Then towards the end of that time, Abner changes allegiance and he decides to follow David and he rallies all of these other tribes. He goes around. There's a national king, but there's local leadership, these elders. And he goes around to all these groups of elders and says, y'all have always wanted David to be your king. Well, now let's do that. So he's he's in the process of setting up a ceremony where all of these northern tribes will come to David and say, we want you to be our king. And he's murdered by one of David's, uh, by David's nephew. His name's Joab, who's the commander of David's army. Murders Abner, and it could throw all of that into disarray. The people in the north are alarmed. They're shocked. Abner was their leader, and now he's been murdered. What does that mean for them? Then last week, in another uplifting story, we saw that Ishbosheth, the king, is also murdered by two guys who are part of his tribe, who are commanders in his army. And so we've got the two national leaders of Israel have both been murdered, Abner and Ishbosheth, back to back. So there's no national leadership, but all the local leadership has said, we want David to be our king. And that's where chapter 5 picks up. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, you are, you are, you, excuse me, you, we, we, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed the king and he reigned 40 years In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. So this is something we've been building towards all the way back to 1 Samuel 16. When the prophet Samuel shows up in Bethlehem, David's hometown, and says to Jesse, I'm here to anoint one of your sons. And all of Jesse's sons come before Samuel. And Samuel says, nope, 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 nope. You have anybody else? Yeah, I got one more. My youngest, he's shepherding in the field and Samuel says well go get him and bring him here and David comes and Samuel dumps a flask of oil on his head and we don't know exactly what he says but something along the lines of God has called you to be the next king of Israel all the way back then David's 14 15 16 years old in first Samuel 16 and now he's 37 or 38 years old so 20 plus years this journey trek odyssey for David to get to the culmination of his calling, to finally be on the throne of Israel. That's how long this has taken for him, and lots of ups and downs, mostly downs, honestly. If you look at it, many difficult days uh, for David over the course of those 20-plus years. And there's, there's not a lot of fanfare. We just get a couple of statements. We don't, there's not much detail given. We don't see fireworks. We don't see a big... Feast. It seems to be a solemn assembly, and the, the elders of Israel go to him, and they say, we want you to be our king for three reasons. One, because you're one of us. There's a relational connection. You're, they say, you're really good at your job. 
in 1 Samuel 8, when they originally say we want a king, they say we want a king who will lead us in battle. And they say to David, You've been, that's, that's what you did. Even though Saul was our king, you were the one that led our troops in battle and you were good at it. And they also say because God's called you to this. There's this filtering out in the country of the truth that God has called David uh, to be the king. I don't know how widespread it was, but these local elders recognize God's calling on David's life. That quote is not found in 1 Samuel anywhere, but it's, it's accurate. There's truth there. God has called David. So for those three reasons, the relational connection, David's skill as a military leader, God's calling on David's life, they enter voluntarily into this covenant with him. So David becomes king not because he conquers anyone or not because of inheritance, because of who his dad was, because this nation, these Confederation of tribes recognizes in him, you're the one God's chosen to be our leader, and we've seen that evidence through the way you've lived. And so David becomes king. And again, it's at age 30, he becomes king over Hebron. And then at age 37, 38, he becomes king over all of Israel. 20-something years in the making. And then you have three scenes, the rest of chapter 5, you have these three different snapshots that... Uh, it's kind of like a greatest hits for David. It's here's, here's how God is establishing him as the king. So now he's been made king by covenant with the people, and we'll see God establishing him as king in some different ways. So verse 6, the king, that's David, and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who live there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David can't get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That's why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. So David establishes a, God establishes a new capital city. And so why does David pick Jerusalem? Why does he feel some need to pick a new capital? He'd been in Hebron, which was the tribe of Judah, and he was a Judahite. That was his tribe. When Saul led, he was in Gibeah, was the city where he led from, and it was in Benjamin, which was one of his, that was his tribe. And so David goes to a city that's not necessarily affiliated with any tribe. It at one point it had been with Judah and at one point it had been with Benjamin, but it had never actually been conquered. Way back 800 years before, God had said to Abraham, you're going to take, th- these are some of the people you're going to drive out. You're going to drive out the Jebusites and it never happened. They'd never been able to take Jerusalem. There's some times where they had defeated the Jebusites, but they had not been able to evict them from the city. And so David taking Jerusalem, part of that is him fulfilling this word to Abraham from 800 years ago. This is land that God has given us. Part of it was it was just strategic. It moved him out of his homeland into a more neutral territory, and so that probably helped him just politically to say, hey, I'm not just going to be a homebody here. I'm not just going to be for the home team. We're all in this together. And so David moves up to Jerusalem. That's the green dot from Hebron, which is the red. Gibeah, that blue one, is where Saul had set up his headquarters. No, no, nobody's got a, there's no castles at this point. Nobody's got a palace or anything like that. Saul led un, from under a tree, it appears. So don't think too grandly about what it means to 
pick a new capital city, but we don't, we don't see much. And again, Jerusalem is a very central, both the Old and the New Testament. We don't see much, don't get much detail on how exactly David won. It seems maybe it's implied that God does most of the work. I don't know. There's this underground water system. Jerusalem was a walled city. It was really small, 12 acres. And there was a spring that was right down there. That blue dot is the spring. And it was outside the wall. So if there was a siege, if you had an army come and gather around your city so you couldn't get supplies, Jerusalem had this kind of secret source of water. It's this underground tunnel. And it seems like maybe David discovered that. And he sent some guys up the tunnel to as a maybe a sneak attack, a surprise attack. And that's how he was able to take the city. But regardless, as he takes the city, which is also called Zion, you'll see that word a lot in Psalms, and he renames it the city of David. That was a common thing to do. So Jerusalem, city of David, Zion, all refer to the same thing. Now the capital of Israel. Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. So now we do have a big place for him to live. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jothin, no, Jophia, Eleshema, Eliada, and Eliphalet. Something like that. Elephant. So that's what you've got. That probably happens when David's in his 60s. Don't, not necessarily chronological here. When Hiram was the king, overlapping with when David was the king, it was the very end of David's reign. So probably in his 60s when this happened. Uh, Hiram's the king of Tyre. It's another um, city-state, not necessarily friends with Israel. It's a time where you didn't really have allies. You were either conquering or being conquered. And it says something to David. It says, then he knew. It's interesting. He had all of these other, what I would, we may say, well, how did you not know you were the king? How did you not know God had established you? You had this, you have this uh, new capital city. You've been in a, entered into a covenant with these other tribes. But it says, then he knew, not to make too much of one word, but it says, once Hiram sends him these skilled laborers, and once Hiram sends him all of these materials to build a palace for him, then he knew he was the king. There was kind of that external affirmation maybe. But I think what it meant is this world where it's kind of dog-eat-dog for somebody to say to David, hey, I'm going to preemptively send you a nice gift because I don't want you messing with me. I think at that point David said, okay, God has established me, not just maybe in Israel, but in this broader world. These other guys are recognizing that we've got some strength here as a country, that God's hand is upon us, his favor is with us, and they don't want they don't want anything to do with us at this point. So they're trying on the front end. They're trying to preemptively say, hey, don't, don't look our way. Just build a castle here. Build a palace. Don't come and attack us. And so I, I'm wondering if that's what the then means. At that point, David recognized it's not just here within Israel. Even these other godless nations are recognizing that I'm the king, that God has established me. Not necessarily anything about him. It says for his people it's not necessarily about David, but it's just a recognition. Israel had been down for centuries. They'd been trounced. They'd lost a lot of territory through disobedience, which then led to 
God withdrawing his hand and allowing them to be overrun by enemies. And over the course of David's reign, he begins to take some of that territory back. And now maybe towards the end, the last five or ten years of his life, he's saying, okay, they, they see it now. They can't pick on us anymore. God's with us. And then we see this mixed bag. This is David's, uh, it's his Achilles heel. He's such a great king. He's such a great leader. He's the best king in the history of Israel by far. It's incredible. And he cannot get his personal life together. It is, it, it, it undermines much of what he does and brings so much pain and so much tragedy uh, into his life and into the life of his kids. He already has seven wives. He's already got seven. And now he marries more. That concubine is basically a sex slave. Don't think human trafficking, but that's basically what they're for. They're there to have babies. That's what a concubine is. And so he's got now, he's expanded his harem. He doesn't just have seven wives. He's got more wives and he's got concubines. And now he starts to have more children. And in a sense, we'd say, well, that's God is establishing David's house. He's getting a literal house built from some foreign king and Metaphorically, his house, his lineage is growing. Children, particularly sons, were considered blessings from God. And David's got tons of them now. Eleven or more, I can't remember the exact number, sons that he has now. And so, in a sense, we would say God is building his house and establishing his house and blessing him. But the way David goes about it is just wrong. Marriage in the Bible is one man, one woman forever. And David's way out of line on that. Kings were warned in Deuteronomy 17... Don't take too many wives. Don't do it. Don't take many wives. It's going to ensnare you. And what we see with David is he has this inability uh, to discipline the people in his family and to exercise any discipline in his own heart when it comes to other women. Some of these marriages were political, I'm sure. It had nothing to do with any kind of personal connection. It had nothing to do with lust or any of that. It was just, I need an alliance with country, person, A, and so I'm going to marry their daughter, and then we don't fight with each other. I'm certain there was some of that going on, but that's not all that's going on. And even if that was all that's going on, it's still not God's intention. It's not his best. And so even at kind of the greatest hits of David, we see him finally moving into his calling and his destiny. We see God establishing him and blessing him. There is a bit of a pause here just to say here's, here's the seeds of his not his demise, but it's definitely the seeds of a lot of difficulty and tragedy for him. There's just a lack of discipline in his own personal life. Verse 17. I actually think verse, these things in verse 17 happened early, maybe before he even captured Jerusalem, but really early, before Hiram, before the palace. When the Philistines heard that David, but David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered, go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he, de- there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Don't go straight up. 
but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. So again, I think it happened early. So David had been king for seven and a half years, and the Philistines hadn't messed with him. And I think they hadn't messed with him, one, because he was just the king of Judah, which was a relatively small place. For the first five of year, years of his reign, they were really running the show in the rest of Israel. The last two years, when Abner and Ishbosheth were running the show, David fighting against they were fighting against David. And so I think their attitude was the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they just left him alone. But once David became king of all of Israel, then he became a threat to them. And so I think before he could get his feet on the ground, they attacked. And then when they attacked, I don't think he had Jerusalem. If he did, he would have stayed there. It was very well fortified. It was very difficult uh, to get at. I think he didn't have Jerusalem yet. And so he moved into the wilderness, which is a place he knew. That's the stronghold. And uh, David had spent seven, eight, ten years living in the wilderness, avoiding Saul, and he knew it. He knew the caves, he knew the cities, he knew the places where he could go to be safe. And I think that's where he went. And then he asked the Lord, should I go up and fight? The Philistines have moved into this valley, which was a mile south of Jerusalem, so they're deep in Israelite territory, and God says, yes, go fight them. And so David goes, and we, again, we don't see anything about the battle. We just see the Lord broke out against them, and it was a huge victory for Israel. And remember, when armies are fighting in this culture and understanding, their gods are fighting. So when the Philistines leave their idols, what they're saying is, y'all didn't do anything for us. You didn't help us. Their God won. And so they leave their idols behind, and David takes them off and uh, probably burns them. Is probably what they did with those idols. And then there's another attack. We don't know how... how how much time had elapsed, but there's another one. And again, David says to the Lord, what, what, what should I do? He doesn't just assume, well, this is what we did last time, so this is what I'll do this time. Or last time God said to fight, so he's going to fight this time. He gives God an opportunity. What do you want me to do? And it's different. It's a different strategy. Hang back by these trees, and when the Philistines come running, they're going to run right into you, and that's what happens. There's, we, I don't know what it means for an army to go marching through the poplar trees, but that's what happens, whether it's a big wind or there's angels or whatever God does, it scares the Philistines, it spooks them, and they get slaughtered. And it's 20 miles from Gibeon to Gezer. So that's the distance of David's uh, pursuit of the Philistines. It says he slaughtered them the whole way. So you can think of that's from here to Atlanta. That's a long way to be chasing people and killing them. That's how thorough the defeat was of the Philistines. And so what we see there, David was chosen to be the king according to the people because he had led the people in battle. Even when Saul was the king, you led us in battle. And what we see, these first two battles from David, the, what he does, which is different than Saul, is he asks the Lord first. He leads the people, but he leads the people as he's following the Lord, which is different. Saul just went out and did what he wanted and then asked God to fix it on the back end or tried to justify it on the back end. David at the beginning says, God, what do you want me to do? It's a different uh, strategy for fighting, where he first 
submits to the Lord. We saw it when he was leading that ragtag army in the uh, wilderness, and we see it here now that he's leading thousands. There's thousands of people with him now. It's not 600 men. You can read through 1 Chronicles 12. gives a list of all of the soldiers who've attached themselves to David. So even though it's early in his reign, he's got a significant army that he's leading. And even with that, he's yielded to the Lord. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to fight? And he does what the Lord says. And so we have God has established David as the king through covenant. God has established the capital city, Jerusalem. God has established David's house, both a, a physical house and this, his children, biological house. And now we see God's established the borders for Israel. He's driving out the enemy and reestablishing. This is the land that I've given to my people. And he's using David to do that. So for us, connection points. What we would say in our Stonebridge lingo is David was doing his deal. That's our corny way of saying God has created good works in advance. For God has created for David is to be the king of Israel. It goes all the way back to 1 Samuel 16 when he's just a boy, just a teenager, excuse me, 15, 16 years old. And it plays out over the course of the next 20 plus years to chapter 5 where we see God establishing David. These different pictures of God establishing David as king. And so for us, what's the connection point? You have a calling on your life. There's a race that God wants you to run. There's good works that God has created in advance for you to do. There's ways that God wants you to partner with him and that he wants to partner with you and what he's doing in your city, whatever your city is. And so there's, we all have calling. None of us are going to be the king. That's not, it's not on the table for us. It's not in the cards. But there is a race for us to run. There are good works for us to do. So let me give you just three, maybe, hopefully they're helpful, handholds. They don't necessarily tie into each other. But maybe you can figure out, hey, is there one of these that resonates the most for where I am now? So the people come to David and say, there's three reasons we want you to be the king. One is the relational connection because we're same flesh and blood. One is because of his skills, because you've led the people in battle. And one is because of his calling this word from God. He's called you. He's said you're going to be the king. So maybe for some of you, you're at a fork in the road right now. You're trying to evaluate an opportunity. For you, your career, it's, it's more than a job. You really feel like God has put you in that career and that there's ways that your job and your career are advancing what he's doing. And the world doesn't have to mean that you're working for a Christian company at all, but the work you're doing is helping people flourish. It's good work. And so maybe for you, you're, you're, you're deciding... I don't know. Do I stay? Do I go? All of you have opportunities to serve in multiple ways. You get emails from us. You get emails from your kids' classroom and the sports team and the civic organization you're a part of. And there's always opportunities. And so how do we navigate those? How do we, what's the grid to help us say, God, is this part of the race that you have for me to run? Some people just say, well, if there's a need and I've got time, then I'll say yes. And that, that's okay. It's not a sin. I don't know that it's wise. It'll wear you out. But it's not a sin. And there are other people who, like, you have to say the magic words at just the right time of day when all the stars have aligned for them to ever consider saying yes. And that's not necessarily a righteous way of filtering either. But I think you can see here at the beginning of 1 Samuel a bit of a grid. So if you are maybe thinking about an opportunity, you're, there are needs out there, or we'll call them opportunities, and you're trying to say, is that, is that for me? And it's beyond just whether you have the time. Some things that maybe you can ask yourself um, based on First Samuel 
excuse me, 2 Samuel 5, is their chemistry. Would you say, yeah, I actually have a connection to the people who are doing this work. There's a kindredness. There's a like-mindedness or a like-heartedness. These are people who I actually want enjoy being with. That's a, that's a thing. That's not nothing. That's a pretty big deal. You may want to say, do I have the skills? Am I competent in this area? Can I actually do the work? Particularly if, if it's something that you're going to be paid to do. Can I actually do that? Do I have the necessary skills? Calling. Is there a drawing in you to that? Is there a weightiness there? Does it weigh on you in the best sense of the word? Some of you, you hear something and, and it kind of sticks in your heart and you can't shake it. That, the headlines don't do that for everybody. But if there's one that's really stuck in your heart, that may be the way the Lord is calling you to get involved in that particular issue or that particular area. Is there an excitement in you for that? I'd encourage you, if you're at a crossroads, maybe you're considering multiple opportunities, run them through that grid. Calling, competence, and chemistry. If the, the, the bigger the decision, the greater the commitment, the more I would want all three of those things to really line up before I said yes. If it's come work for an hour and a half next Sunday in the nursery, say yes. If it's lead a mission trip, I would want some of those things to begin to line up. Lead a small group for the next year. I'd want those things to line up. Take a new job. I would definitely want those things to line up. Get involved in this civic organization. Those, are the, those bigger commitments, I would want to be able to check all of those boxes and say, yes, there's an inner drawing in me to this. Yes, I feel like I have the skills necessary to do whatever it is they're asking me to do. And yes, I actually have a, I, I'm a heart connection to the people who I would be working with. When you think about David, long period of time for him, 20 plus years. We, it took us a while to go through it, but if you were just reading it straight, you'd read it in 30, 45 minutes. You could read his whole life story. And so sometimes we lose the fact this is two plus decades, beginning when he's 15 or 16 years old and culminating when he's 37 or 38. And even that, he's still got 33 more years to lead. And so what... Maybe for us, as you think about your calling, I would say, well, do you have a sense of what that is? Could you name it? If I had gave you an index card, could you say, yeah, this is the race God wants me to run right now, or these are the good works he's put in front of me to do. This is how I'm partnering with him and what he's doing in our city. Could you name that? And if you could, and I hope you can, recognize there's still a progression. Just because you know you don't start off as the king of Israel. For David, there was many steps to get there. He began shepherding sheep, and that's, all, that's what he would have done. Sons did what they, 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 they inherited the family business. So if Jesse's a shepherd, David's going to be a shepherd. That's what he's going to do. It's the limits of his future. I don't mean limits in a bad word. Just that's what it is. And yet, and there's some things that God is doing in his heart. When he's 15 or 16 years old, God identifies him out of the entire nation and says, he's a man after my own heart when he's still just a teenager. So there's some depth. There's some things that are going on with David as he's tending sheep. And then he winds up, he kills Goliath, and he's a hero for a little bit. And then Saul gets jealous and tries to kill him. And so David spends eight or ten years in the wilderness. And this ragtag group of people attached to him, the indebted and the distressed and the 
um, the disturbed, and those guys come, and they're connected to David, and there's 400 men, and then there's 600 men, and their wives and their kids, so he's probably got 2,000 people, and he's learning how to lead people, and he's learning to lead very difficult people because they're unhappy, and he's, he's learning how to do that. I'm sure there are times where he was saying, this is what it means to be the king, I'm out. Remember, he didn't go looking for that job. He didn't apply. God came and found him in Bethlehem. And then he moves into Hebron maybe 10 years after that, and he's, it's a partial fulfillment. He's the king of his tribe, Judah, which isn't nothing, but it's not everything. And then seven and a half years later, he becomes the king of Israel. And so for you, if you have a sense of what God is calling you to do or what the race box is, nobody can put themselves in the last box. You're not, you don't know you're in the last box until you're on your deathbed and then you realize you're in the last box. Prior to that, you assume there's always another step. We can see that in David's life, and I would encourage you to think about the, your own life in a very similar way. There's always another step. And being faithful in the step that you're in now is what prepares you to take the next one. David was faithful as a shepherd. And so God can say, you're a man after my own heart. And David was faithful with this ragtag group. And God formed and shaped his character, and he gave him the skills to lead. So then he moves him to Hebron. And David is faithful for those seven and a half years. And so then God moves him forward into Israel. Would you put yourself in one of those? Those of you over here, teenagers, y'all are all tending sheep. That's what you're doing. It's foundational. But it has nothing to do with chronology and everything to do with maturity. It just so happens that when you're a teenager that you just don't have a lot of options. And everything at that point is about having foundation laid. There's not tons of opportunities. But there will be in a couple of years. When you, go to, when you graduate, things open up a little bit more. And then when you go to school, we still may be in that first box. And don't hear that in a remedial sense or criticism. Again, it's about maturity and development. It's not about chronology. And there may be some things foundationally that God still needs to put in you. And until that foundation is firm, you can't move to the next step. Because anything that's done or built in that next step will crumble if the foundation is not solid. And maybe you would find yourself in the wilderness and you're leading a ragged group and you're holding it together with bailing wire and duct tape and y'all don't have any money and you don't have any people and there's no sense maybe of momentum at all. You just know I have this idea and I'm doing my best to implement it. I can't get the words on the page, but I know he's called me to do whatever that is. That can be that frustrating time. Can you be faithful there in the wilderness? If you are, then he'll move you to the next step. But wherever you are, Jim Elliott, one of our favorite quotes, wherever you are, be all there. And recognize wherever you are is preparing you for what's next. And that's the tension to hold. That you're both fully present where you are and recognizing where you are is probably not where you're going to be. And that takes a lot of discipline and a lot of grace to do both of those things. Super easy to settle and say, this is it for me. And you never give God an opportunity to move you on. So David spends the rest of his life tending sheep when he was supposed to lead a nation. Or he spends the rest of his life leading a, you know, Robin Hood, leading this band of ragged, rebellious people, raiding villages and just kind of living day to day. And he never becomes the king of Israel. That's a ditch for some of us. The other one is... We're not able to be fully present where we are because we're always looking at what's next. Neither one of those is healthy. 
want to be able to say at the same time, I'm fully present, I'm fully invested. Where I am gets all of me, not just some of me. And I recognize it very well could be and most likely will be that where I am is not where I will stay. I'm not talking geographically. God will move me forward. Can you do both of those things? Does that help maybe give you a sense, a handhold for where you are in terms of living out your calling? It's a process. Nobody goes from revelation to fulfillment in a day. It takes time where God is forming us as individuals and where God is giving us this character-wise and he's given us the skills that we need to be effective. You learn to lead sheep. Then you learn to lead this group of outlaws. Then you learn to lead this one tribe. Then you're ready to lead a nation. And all that time that you're learning how to do something, he's also making you into a certain person. You don't touch the kid. You, you let me move you forward. Don't grab on to things yourself. This guy's a warrior, and he's having to learn. Trust in the Lord. He's going to move me forward in his own time. This guy's a warrior, and he's having to learn. I can't use my position to advance my personal agenda. I can't use my position to take revenge on people who've wronged me. God's forming his kids. Maybe another picture that would help you. So this is terrible. I have a math brain, and so some of you don't. And I'm sorry that I put God's work on a coordinate plane, but that's what I did. It's artificial. It's just me trying to um, give a grid for how God may be working. And how I see God working. And again, for those of you, when you think of those boxes, you may put yourself in one of those boxes. I hope you can. And in the midst of that, to be able to maybe name what God is doing. We don't have to understand God in order to follow him. That doesn't require faith. But I do think it's helpful if we have some boxes to say, hey, this is, these are the ways God works. And it helps me cooperate with him. And so I created one, refining and favoring. Favoring is not a word. I just couldn't think of a better one. And so refining really has to do with our character, and a lot of times that's, things can be painful and difficult on some level. And favoring is really, it's, it's the good times, it's the blessing, it's the fruitfulness. And then that other axis you've got when God's work in us is hidden and it's private. And it goes up David's life, and you can see these different ways in which God is working at different times. Chapter 5, it's public favoring. Everything he's doing is turning to gold. God is with him in a mighty way. He's the God who breaks out and wipes out armies. He's the God who evicts the Jebusites who have been immovable for 800 years. He's the God who has a foreign king send him stuff to build a castle. The God who's given him 11 or 12 or 13 sons. It's all public and it's all good. It's this time again of public I'm just calling it favoring, blessing on David. There are times where that blessing, that favoring is private. When David was in Ziklag in Philistia in a foreign country and his guys were, he was leading his people in raids against other foreigners and he was winning those battles, but nobody knew. Nobody knew. The people he wanted to know didn't know. The Israelites, he didn't even tell the king of Philistia because he would have gotten in trouble. It was hidden. Even though God was blessing him, it wasn't something that was widely known. And so maybe for you, are you in a time where you would say, you know what, I'm really experiencing the favor and blessing of God. And maybe nobody knows. It's just personal with you. You're seeing some breakthroughs and you're seeing some victories. Or maybe it's something where you're getting, they're 
They're writing articles about you. Your boss is coming around and giving you kudos, and you're winning awards, and you're getting promoted, and, and every sense of that word. Wonderful if that's where you are. There's also times where God's work is a bit more painful, where he's refining us. And some of that refining is very personal. And honestly, I think most of us would prefer that. If we're going to be corrected and grown, a lot of us want to be able to kind of do that in the privacy of our own hearts. And you see that with David's in a cave, and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe, and he's convicted. I think the word was his heart hit him in the face. That was the Hebrew word for how he felt when God convicted him and said, don't do that anymore. You can't do that. Don't touch Saul. And David changes his posture. And I'm not, nobody lays a hand on Saul. We saw it with Abigail. He's mad because Abigail's husband, Nabal, has insulted him. And he's decided his response is to saddle up these 600 men and to go and slaughter Nabal and all the men in his house. And if you can imagine that scene with 600 testosterone-fueled men who are armed, they're angry, and they're indignant because they've been assaulted, insulted, and then one lady stands out in the road and says, you've got to turn around. Think what it takes in David to turn around, to not just run her over, literally, to not run her over. What does it take for him, with all of his guys looking at him, to say, you're right, it would be a sin for me to do what I just said we were going to do. He had just said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to slaughter them. Those words just come out of his mouth, public declaration. And Abigail says, it would be a sin for you to do that. What does it take in him in that moment to receive that rebuke and to turn all of his guys around and go home? That's a public refining. There's probably a bit of embarrassment, maybe humiliation there, definitely a humbling for David. And sometimes that's the case for us. Rather it be private, but sometimes it's not. Is there a way for you to conceive of how God is working in your life right now, looking at how God worked in David's? Some of you by nature are private people, and you'll take anything from the Lord as long as nobody else knows. He doesn't always work that way. Sometimes his work is public, and you've got to be willing I would encourage you to be willing to allow him to work publicly. If you suppress the life of others, there's something, and this could be difficult, but when people see it embodied in someone else, whether that's this refining or it's this blessing, it encourages and spurs people on. Some of you, that's, your issue is not up and down. Your issue is left and right. You'll take the good things all day long. It's difficult for you to conceive of God disciplining you. When something happens and it's not super pleasant, it's hard for you to grab onto how God may want to use that. The idea of God refining you doesn't necessarily fit. Or maybe the other way, some of you are super hard on yourself and you'll take the lashes all day long, which you, it's difficult for you to enjoy God's blessings. You're waiting on the other shoe to drop. You feel guilty. I don't know, but which one of those, which way is it hard for you to move? Is it harder for you to move up and down, or is it harder for you to move left and right? I want to take a minute and pray. Run, bumping up on the time here. Kaylee's going to come back and lead us in one song. We'll have ministry teams here up in the front. I've given you three things that don't necessarily connect to each other, and you just need to grab onto one of them. 
I would hope that you would grab onto one of them. Are you at a crossroads? Are you evaluating an opportunity? Would you be willing to submit that to the Lord this morning? Run it through that grid of calling and competence and chemistry. But submit it to him. Would you let us pray with you that God would give you discernment as you move forward? Some of you have a, you have a clear sense of what God is calling you to, the race that he's called you to run, the good works he's created in advance for you to do. But maybe you're frustrated. Would you be willing this morning to commit to being fully present where God has you? To be faithful with maybe what in your mind is little until he sees fit to give you more. Maybe you would say, I'm kind of fat and happy. I'm not seeking, I'm not asking, I'm not pursuing. I'm pretty happy with the status quo. Would you be willing to recognize that you're not in the last box yet? There's another step for you. Give God the opportunity to stir your heart again. Maybe for some of you, you're wrestling with the Lord, the work that he's doing. You're a private person and you feel like the work is more public than you would like. And you're shutting him down in your life. Would you be willing to release that? To leave your reputation to him? Maybe it's that left-right continuum between refining and favoring. I don't know. You invite the Lord in. So, Holy Spirit, would you come? It's really kind of wildly disparate ideas. And I pray that you would sink one into the hearts of every man and woman in this room. That we would have a sense of what it is you're doing in us. God, I do want to pray particularly for our teenagers as they are 15 and 16 years old. And at that age, you call Mary. At that age, you call Joseph. At that age, you call David. And God, I pray that as they're busy with school and sports and their social lives, I pray that you would speak very clearly into them the good works that you've created in advance for them to do, not just now, but they would have a sense of 30 and 40 and 60 years from now, that you would begin to stir things in them that they would move towards for the rest of their life that you would alter their trajectory, that they would begin to recognize the things they're doing now and how those things contribute to what you want to do through them later. Not that all of their life is for later, God. They would be fully present now, but there would be that sense of destiny and calling for each one of them. I pray they would have dreams. I pray they would see visions. I pray that your word would come alive to them. I pray that their parents would be able to recognize gifts in them and help cultivate those things. God, we want to see our teenagers running far and running fast after you. And God, for the rest of us in this room, would you come now and minister into our hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand.